invite you to be seated. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 2. Uh, last week we began in the book of Micah and we saw that uh, judgment begins in the house of God. And God is in this book calling out his people for their idolatry and their rejection of him. And because of this, they are going to be taken into captivity. The Assyrians are coming and God is going to deal with his people. And this morning, the first oracle continues in chapter two. And what we will see is that there are some specific indictments against God's people. And uh, we see this in two sections. The, um, and they seem at first glance to be disconnected. But as I was thinking about them this week, and as I was looking at this text, I, I think they really are connected. And my hope is to sort of bring that out and for us to be able to see together how they are connected uh, toward the end. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see that uh, what God is getting at in this text really goes much deeper than what we read on the surface. So this is the word of the Lord from Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil in their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily. For it will be a, a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trusting with, trustingly with no thought of war. The, woman, or the women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses and their young, and from their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go. For this is no place of rest because of uncleanliness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he will be the preacher of or for this people. This is the word that the Lord has for us this morning. Father, I just pray your spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds this morning through your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that believe. Teach us from your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look back and, and we begin in Micah 2 this morning, I want to have a New Testament text ringing in our ears as we work through this passage. And that New Testament text is James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And the reason for this, I think this is helpful is it shows us, I think, what the core issue of what is going on in Micah chapter 2 is, the core issue that is being addressed in Micah chapter 2. And so in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy to God. Now, before we go back to Micah, notice that James first highlights wrong desires. That's at the beginning of this passage in in James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not your desires, your passions at war within you? He says the reason that there are quarrels and fights is you want and you don't have. And then that leads to all kinds of different actions to obtain wrongly, all kinds of sinful action. And here's the point. The reason I wanted to go to this text and highlight this text this morning before we go back to Micah chapter 2 is because James very clearly shows us that the problem is not that they're killing and coveting. The problem is that killing and coveting is the fruit of wrong desires within them that have taken hold and have grown up a tree of wickedness in their hearts. It's not just the action. It's the passions at war within you and the wanting and not having that leads to all kinds of sinful action. And the root is wrong longing. Passions at war within. And secondly, he specifically highlights coveting as a result of these out-of-control passions. So in James chapter 4, he he specifically mentions coveting. That's going to be significant, so just keep that in your mind. And thirdly, the third reason I wanted to go to this text and have this ringing in our ears this morning is he highlights that when people ask and they don't get, the reason is because of the wrong motive. Again, it's not the action, it's the motive. He says, "You, you take and you murder and you covet And you don't ask, and when you do ask, you ask wrongly. You ask with wrong motives. You ask to be able to spend it on your own passions. The issue that is highlighted here is not the action, but the internal heart condition that led to these actions. This is an indictment of the heart, the motives, the longings, and the love of these kinds of people. And in Micah chapter 2, what Micah gets at is an indictment of the hearts, the motives, the longings, and the loves of the people of Israel. So we see that this is a heart issue, and it plays out in two areas. That's the two sections, and so there are two points this morning. And then we're going to look at application at the end. So the first point is a sinful heart leads to destruction. A sinful heart leads to destruction. We see that in verses 1 through 5. So first of all, they deceitfully, these, these, these are, this is talking uh, primarily to, from, from what I've been able to tell, this is primarily talking to these land barons and wealthy people that are, um, th- that are oppressing other people, okay? Now, keep that in mind as, as we go through, because this is going to play out. So these people deceitfully scheme from a dishonest heart. We see that in verse 1. 
Woe to you, or woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because the power is in their hand. They scheme at night. They stay up late at night. They're sitting up at night, obsessed, consuming, scheming. How can I get what I want? How can I take advantage of that poor person over there? How can I get that little piece of land and add it to my, uh, my portfolio? And then as soon as the sun comes up, they're after it, man. They, they can't even wait to start acting on their sinful desires. This is a pattern of living. This is not a mere temptation that they succumb to, right? The issue here is not that at one point in time, these people who were incredibly wealthy um, had a momentary lapse of judgment, fell into sin, stayed up one night scheming, took advantage of people the next day, recognized their wrong, repented of it, and, and now there's some sort of like residual anger on God's part for them. That's not what this is. This, this is a people who do bad, evil things from a wicked, sinful heart simply because they can. Look at verse 1. Because it is in the power of their hand, that's why they do it. I can do this. I'm going to do it. It's a pattern of lifestyle. And apparently, this had become so common within the southern kingdom of Judah that it was widespread enough for God to actually say this. Right? So this is not an isolated incident of a few people. This is a systemic problem within the community of God's people. And it's not a person that just does it once, recognizes his wrong, repents of it, and, and offers up the sin sacrifice that the law requires. This is a person who is totally immune to any sort of uh, scruples about their business practices, and all they care about is working to their own advantage. They deceitfully scheme from a dishonest heart. And this is the result of scheming to do wicked and then carrying out their plans. The sin, they, they sin because they can with no regard for the impact of others. They use their position and wealth and power for evil gains by evil means. They use their position and wealth not to do good for others, but for the expansion of their own power and wealth without regard for who is hurt or ruined in the process. And then in verse 2, it becomes even more clear. They covet rather than having thankful, content hearts. Their hearts are covetous rather than having thankful and content hearts. You see that in verse 2. It says, they covet fields and seize them. Now, it's significant that Micah uses the word covet because in the covenant law, we see in the Ten Commandments that covenant or coveting is antithetical to what it means to live as God's people who are called to reflect his character. And again, this is not a momentary lapse. They are coveters at heart. There was provision in the law for people that coveted to have their sin dealt with through the sacrifices. This is not that. God would not be angry with his people for availing themselves of the very means that he gave to deal with their failures to keep the law. This is an utter disregard for the law altogether. This is a covetous heart. They are coveters. And we see a pattern where these people are characterized as uh, where they've, they've acted in a manner that exposes their hearts such that they are characterized as coveters. And if you see in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, 
God forbids coveting anything that is not theirs. He says, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his house or his ox or his servant or his donkey. And then just to sort of tidy it all up or anything else that is your neighbor's, right? There's no loopholes here. And in the New Testament, we see that coveting is idolatry. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, when Paul expands on what it means to have your mind set on the things of the earth, he explains very clearly what he's getting at, and he says coveting is idolatry. So the same issue that was going on for the northern kingdom in bowing down to idols, we're talking about the syncretistic religion of the southern kingdom, they were covetors too. They were idolaters as well. They might not have all bowed down to idols of gold in temples and high places, but they certainly bowed their hearts to the idols of stuff and possessions and coveted to the point where they gave utter disregard for God's law that he had given to his people. And then in verses 2 and verse 9, we see that they steal rather than earning. They covet a field and seize them and the house and take uh, take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. I'm just going to take it. The scheming is not, scheming is coming from a coveting heart that steals. And stealing is also against God's covenant law. Coveting gives, gives way to outright theft. But here's the question. Who is the theft against? Who is the theft against? We could say that it's against the neighbor. And in verse 9, we see that's true. If you go down to verse 9, the women of my people, you drive out from their delightful houses and from their young children, you take away my splendor forever. So they are stealing from God's people. So you could say that this theft is a theft from neighbor, right? And they are failing to love their neighbor as themselves, which is at the heart of the law. And they are not loving their neighbor and therefore are driving them out of their pleasant homes and taking advantage of the most vulnerable among them. But if we get back, if you go back to the law and look a little closer, what we see is that this is not just stealing from neighbor. It's actually stealing from God. We can see that this land was actually God's who distributed it to Israel to steward and care for as their inheritance. It was a sacred trust to be handed down from generation to generation. So for example, in 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 2, we see that Nobath refuses to allow King Ahab to take his vineyard, saying, quote, Yahweh forbids that I should sell you my ancestral heritage. It was God's land. It was God's land, and he protected the rights of the people to whom he had given it to steward. According to the law in Leviticus 25, the land could never be permanently lost to taxation, debt, or even voluntary sale. And if, for example, somebody went into debt and had to sell their land, the next generation had the land given back to them so that they could go and they could farm it and they could provide for 
their family and make a living. It was the responsibility of those in authority to protect those rights, and they not only failed, but participated in the theft, which was not only theft against their neighbor, but theft against God himself. And so, coveting led to stealing with utter disregard for God's word, God, word or God's law, with utter disregard for who actually owned it. And then we see in verses three through five, because of this, they're going to reap what they sow, destruction. So a sinful heart leads to destruction. In verses three through five, there's this tremendous irony there. While these people are staying up late at night, scheming from coveting hearts and then waking up early to act and steal from their neighbor and from God, God was not indifferent to this. You can't stay up later than God, who doesn't ever sleep. And so while these people are sitting up at night scheming and then can't wait for the morning to come up and take their uh, plans and turn them into fruition, God says, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. And here's the irony of this. These people were scheming to take land that wasn't theirs, to steal it, to enhance their possessions, to take advantage of their neighbor, stealing from God because it was his land, and they reap what they sow because what's going to happen is the foreigners are going to come in and going to take their land from them. They get nothing. The very same thing that they schemed to do against these innocent people that they were taking advantage of, God is going to do against them. God is not indifferent. You reap what you sow. They take land from others. Now they would be utterly driven out from the land themselves. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly, saying, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots my field. These foreigners are coming in. These, these, these pagans are coming in and taking my field. You catch the irony of the indignance of sin when it happens to us and the indifference of sin when it's aimed at other people. And so God exposes their hearts in this. All that they put their hope in and all they put their heart into will be taken from them in the same way that they took it from others. They can't play this game and expect to win. And that brings us to the second point, which is a sinful heart rejects the truth. We see that in verses 6 through 11. A couple things with that. First of all, they surround themselves with people who tell them lies and make them feel good about their sin. Look at verse 11. If a man should go about uttering wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher of the people. That's a fascinating verse. Who, who do leaders surround themselves with when they're doing evil? They surround themselves with people that are going to condone and endorse and support the evil that they're doing. A person in a wicked society does not rise to be the preacher of the people. And, and I think that means like the preacher that is embraced by the people that everybody wants to hear by being honest about what's going on. It's through lies and wind. 
These kind of people, or notice uh, the kind of people that these wicked men want preaching to them utter lies and wind. They have no substance. They preach wind. It blows here and there. It's simply empty, not grounded in anything, not solid. And not only that, but it's lies. They aren't committed to the truth. They tell people what they want to hear. They preach wine and strong drink. Everything's okay. It's all good. You guys are good. Eat, drink, be merry. Don't worry about anything. Things couldn't possibly go wrong. We're fine. We'll be fine. And the sinful hearts of these people want to be soothed rather than confronted. The person who rises to be the preacher of the people has a happy and encouraging message all the time. He never confronts the issues of the culture or the sin of the people or the sin of the leaders. He has a smooth tongue and says what wants to be heard. He tickles ears. He's not a faithful prophet, but a false prophet who proclaims peace, peace, and there is no peace. They downplay the reality of God's holiness, of covenant faithfulness to God. They don't call out sin and wickedness, but rather offer soothing words that lead to destruction. And not only that, but these people that are doing this evil reject men who tell them the truth. We see that in verses 6 through 8. Do not preach, they preach. So I've got the ESV. That's how it's worded. It's worded kind of weird. It, It should be something along the lines of, don't talk like that. That's what they say. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. They're in utter denial of the reality. They don't want to hear somebody that actually points them to the real issue, that has an actual word from God, that speaks from the truth of God's word. They are so inoculated to their own sin and so in love with their own wickedness that they do not want to be confronted by it. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Did not my words do good to those who walk uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the robe of those who pass trustingly with no thought of war. And so they don't surround themselves with people that tell them the truth. They surround themselves with people that say what they want to hear. Messages that are encouraging to a sinful heart, but they cannot abide anyone who would confront them with the actual word of God. That word to them seems harsh, and they have no interest in any kind of message of truth that would challenge their sinful hearts and desires. They want to be validated in their sin rather than confronted by the word of God. So we see here, now here's how, here's how all this fits together, okay? Sinful hearts lead to sinful actions And sinful hearts reject the truth that confronts the sin. And the preaching of God's word and the orientation of the heart are connected. The preaching of God's word and the orientation of the heart are connected. Not only did the preachers in Israel fail to address these issues of the heart among the people, and as a result, this kind of sin became normative and widespread, but when faithful Micah steps into the gap and comes from 
God with a word from God and does confront it with the truth, they tell him, shut up and go back to the people that tell him what they want to hear. And the issue at the core of these is the orientation of their hearts. So it brings us to application. What does this mean for us? The first one is this. We must beware of the idolatry of covetousness. We must beware of the idolatry of covetousness. The main root of the sin in Judah was idolatry expressed in covetousness. We see that in verse 2. They covet fields and seize them. In the New Testament, we find that covetousness is idolatry. And James says that what causes fights and quarrels among you, you want and you don't have. So you steal, you murder. From covetousness. So I doubt any of us in this room are bowing to a golden calf. Yet at the same time, we do struggle with idolatry. We struggle with covetousness. We struggle with envy. We live in a world that is telling us, get this, do that, be this. We're bombarded constantly with this image of what we should have in order to be validated, in order to be seen as successful, in order to be um, approved of. And then we see other people that get things like that and we get envious and we covet what they have and we hate them. And keep in mind, Mike is not talking about the world. We expect the world to be covetous, right? We expect that from the world. Mike is talking to the covenant people of God. James is talking to the covenant people of God. Beware of the idolatry of covetousness. Beware of keeping up with the Joneses. Beware of someone else that's successful, and we envy that, and we want that so bad. Idolatry is not merely bowing to a golden calf. It's a lust of the heart flowing from a lack of contentment with the good gifts God has given us and an aspiration to get gifts to use them on ourselves, according to James. We want wrongly because we ask wrongly, or we ask wrongly because we want wrongly. We want what we don't have, whether it's status or wealth or success or prestige. And it's worth pointing out that in our current culture and climate, there's a lot of discussion about the evils of being wealthy, right? The whole, like... 1% and the, the oppressed 99%. Like, do you notice it's interesting in here that, that Micah doesn't condemn wealth? He doesn't say that it was wrong that there were wealthy people and that the solution to this, the divinely appointed solution to this is some sort of like communistic redistribution of wealth, right? Let's take from the rich and give to the poor like Robin Hood did and, and everybody will be happy, right? That might solve an external problem, but it doesn't solve the real problem of the heart. And that's not even the issue. The issue doesn't have to do with any sort of like difference in wealth versus poverty. That The issue has to do with the heart. The issue here is the attitude of the wealthy. The issue here is the means by which they accumulate wealth. Wealth can actually be a blessing in society, and within the church, it can be a blessing to the people of God. It's the scrupulous practices to cheat the poor out of what is rightfully theirs, to steal from God, 
that God has a problem with. The problem is from their hearts, and the practices flow out of their hearts. By robbing people of their land, they're taking away their God-given means of provision for their families. And by taking that land away from them, they're stealing from God who rightfully gave it to these other people to keep in their family. And if we are to apply this beyond the borders of the family of God, we would find that the issue again is not that some are rich and some are not. The issue comes back to the heart and the covetousness that drives shady practices without concern for anybody else. Which is where, like, you can't regulate that, right? Like, the problem is not secular. The problem is spiritual. Therefore, the solution cannot be secular. And isn't it interesting that we have the solution? Do we apply it right here within our own borders? Do we take the salve of the gospel to apply it to a covetous heart that seeks to gain at others' expenses or seeks to have something that is not ours, that we shouldn't have, that schemes and plots and lists? In all of this, what underlies this is God sees what's going on in these people's lives that other people can't see. He sees. So do we take and do we apply this to ourselves first? Do we see first that the gospel addresses our covetous longings and hearts through reorienting our hearts from worship of stuff to worship of God? From being satisfied in our possessions and our status and our prestige and the opinions of others and, and how things pan out in our lives in a practical way to being satisfied in God. We see, the, what God is getting at here with Israel is not just the practice. It's the heart behind it. The only solution is a new heart that comes from faith in Christ. That brings us to the second point of application, which is this. The condition of the heart in how we view the grace of God's word. God's word to his people is always grace. The hard things that Micah is saying to these people is God's grace in confronting their sin and calling them to repentance. The removal of his grace looks like ear ticklers and wine and strong drink all the time, wind and lies all the time. And yet God in his grace sends Micah to bring this message that none of them want to hear because his word is always grace. Psalm 16, 7 through 11 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, okay, how do we view the law? Right, go back and, go back and read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? Those, those things that we're all like, oh, man, what do we do with that? Oh, my gosh. Child perpetually disobedient. They get stoned at the city gate. Like, and here's David, a man after God's own heart. Yeah, I saw some of the parents. I saw some of the parents make that little nudge. You're lucky you're not under the law. Um, here we have David, 
Here we have David, a man after God's own heart, that's laying in his bed at night with his harp. I don't know. He played a harp, so I'm just imagining this. Laying in his bed at night, strumming his harp. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right and altogether good. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. How do we view God's word? Do we view it that way? In all of it, in its totality. Paul said that I did not shrink from preaching the whole counsel of God's word to you. It is not harsh or unkind. It is grace that confronts sin. It is grace that calls us away from our wicked hearts and to a holy God in repentance and faith. And the most fascinating verse in this second section here for me is this. Verse 7 at the tail end. Does not my word do good to him who walks uprightly? Does not my word do good to him who walks uprightly? What word, Micah? Woe. The word that he just gave. The word of the Lord is always good for the upright. For those who walk uprightly before God, it is always sweet as honey and the drippings of the honeycomb, even, even when the Spirit uses it to prick our conscience and convict us of our own failure and need for God's grace in repentance and faith in our lives. So the question is always, is it the word or is it the man? It doesn't matter who's up here preaching. It doesn't matter what their personality differences might be. The question that should always be asked is, is it the word? And if I have a bitter taste in my mouth from the word, where am I not walking uprightly? See, God's word is a sharp sword that pierces bone and marrow, and it just cuts straight to the core. And the sinful, wicked heart of man cannot abide the truth of God's word. So we as a people, no matter where we are, are in constant need of God's word and grace of God through his word. And we need to surround ourselves. And this includes not only on Sunday morning, this includes the stuff that we listen to, like the people that we give ear to. We need to surround ourselves with people where you can go back to the text and say, that's true. This person is speaking the truth. And even when it's hard and when it feels offensive and when it feels like it's, it's, it's something that's too much for me, well, why? Is it because I'm not walking uprightly or is it because I'm, I'm, I'm loving my not walking uprightly and I'm not allowing the word to do what it needs to do in my own heart? Christ went to the cross because he said hard things that people did not want to hear.
because he confronted the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day head on. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 10, Isaiah was a contemporary of Micah, said, do not prophesy to us what is right. Well, he didn't say this. The people said this. Do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. So John MacArthur says, soft preaching produces hard hearts. Hard preaching produces soft hearts. A commentator on this text said, the Bible critiques or the Bible's critique of false prophecy indicates that the most vital institution of any nation is the church pulpit. The true preaching awakens the mind and the heart to the truth of God, but false preaching deadens the heart to sin and darkens the heart with eloquent lies. They present a smooth theology. Everything difficult taken out and the message of convenient half-truths sounded down and polished by the most studied eloquence and the most profound oratorical pauses to appeal to the sense of carnal men and women. False prophecy not only deadens the conscience of the hearers against the moral demands of God, but also cheapens God's grace. God's true grace produces a harvest of holiness and peace, but cheap grace awakens sin and evil. And this is just a call for us to ask, how do we view the word of God? Because the only real true change comes when we acknowledge our sin in a way that drives us to faith in Christ as our refuge and deliverance. And constantly hearing that we're okay provides no urgency for us to continually go back to Christ. It provides no awakening or awareness of sin of those outside of Christ that need him. And that brings us to the last one. Jesus died for our exclusive worship. If you're here today and your heart is not right, there is hope. Because the word of God is always pointing back to the source of God himself. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, Paul says that, you know, it gives that list of people that don't inherit the kingdom of heaven. And he says, and such were some of you. Now, the Corinthians were messed up. Paul didn't shrink away from saying, you guys are messed up right? There's sin in the camp that even Gentiles are not on board with, right? That's pretty bad. The way that you guys are suing one another and the the things that are going on in your church is messed up. And it's a good thing that I'm not there because I would drop the hammer. So I'm writing you again. But in writing them, he's confronting their sin in a way that's pointing them back to their identity and back to their hope. And such were some of you. So the, 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 Bottom application of all of this is, like, if we struggle with the idolatry of covetousness, there is a Savior who died for coveters. If we struggle with the grace of God's word, we need to see that it's continuously calling us back to the God who lovingly gives it to his people in order that they might repent and return to him. If you've trusted in Christ... The call is to live as a child of God. Confess knowing that Christ died to redeem you from your sin and that in him you are being made new. Then in faith, walk in step with the Spirit. 
Follow Jesus with your whole heart. Go to him as your only hope. Embrace the discipline of a loving, loving father, which is meant to make us whole. And if you're here today and you have not trusted in Christ, destruction is coming. You're in the same situation as the Israelites here. You're, you're here hearing, and, and your, your destruction is not exile. It's eternal exile from God's presence. And the call is the same. Repent, turn from your sin. A Savior has been provided. Jesus died on the cross for really bad people. He didn't die on the cross for really good people. He died on the cross to redeem sinners from their sin that they might be reconciled to him, walk in newness of life, and reflect him more accurately in their increasing measure throughout their lives. You owe God your allegiance and your heart. It's not to say that that happens without sin, but it is to say that there is an orientation of the heart that is away from sin and toward God. So the question is, where is the orientation of your heart? Because both of these issues are heart issues. Christ suffered, died, and rose that we might be delivered and made right with him. And there is no other way. And the irony of the gospel is that the very God that we should fear is the God who makes peace with us through Christ. So as we transition to the Lord's Supper, we're going to celebrate the peace that he has provided for us in Christ.